If you take your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Acts this morning. And uh, last week we talked about back to the future. And what we were talking about is that as a church, when we were planted as a church in 1999, uh, one of the, the key uh, cogs in the wheel, one of the important DNA pieces that had was uh, small groups. And at that time, over 60% of uh, the church was in small groups. And then um, Norfie went through some rough times. And I joked that we didn't need small groups when I showed up because we were a small group. And you know, that worked. But we went from Jackson High School to Archbishop Murphy to here. And now we've grown quite a bit. And there's a, an awareness, uh, especially among all of us, I think, but from the leadership team. And so I said, you know, we've got to get people back to small groups because we don't know each other's names anymore. And if I said this morning, could you name everybody in here? And because of a certain game, it's a little smaller attendance, right? Okay. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to name everybody even sitting next to you or around you, right? So uh, the need to be known and to know others is increasing, not decreasing. And so we've been making a push for uh, community groups, and I want to thank the leadership team guys for that because I get to wear blue jeans and my funky shoes because I'm wearing a T-shirt, so it's awesome. I feel very casual this morning. Uh, But what we want to do, last week we talked about Going back to that blueprint, this week we want to talk about the importance of small groups and uh, where, where they play, what role they play in the history. So if you want to get more on our church's history before this, you can go to the message last week. But this morning we're going to look at Scripture and just look at what Scripture says on this topic. And it's going to be a survey across. It won't be... A t- you know, a total expository thing, but I think it'll help us. So let's pray this morning. Father, obviously lots of changes, and uh, we would lift Wilson and Lauren up to you as they uh, proceed to make the move uh, back to Pennsylvania. Lord, we pray your blessing on them. We ask for your favor. We ask for finances and timing and all those things that go into a move that those of us who have moved before know. And Lord, we pray for Rob as he steps in the role that you will grant him a wisdom and grace appropriate for what you've called them to do. And then, Lord, this morning, as we look at community groups, as we talk about the opportunity to be in a a small group, we're looking to your word and some of the precedents that were set early on in the history of your church. And I would suspect that you know that better than I do. So your spirit is more than invited uh, this morning. Lord, we uh, need your help to understand. And uh, we ask for your favor as we walk through it and pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, all right. Now, as it's been said thousands and, and, and thousands of times, uh, Jesus' strategy for changing the world started with a small group. They were the original 12th man. No, you didn't get it. Okay. I thought that was really good. Doggone it, Jim. What's with this group? But right, it was the 12 apostles, right? We know them as the disciples, that kind of thing. And so uh, he started that, and I want to take you to uh, Mark chapter 3. whole lot of context around this little passage, but this is the famous place where it says uh, he had been speaking to the crowds, and then he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. And, of course, that's a very short snippet on a very big story. But what I want to talk about or highlight this morning is, you know, if we were asked to change the world, we'd probably do it differently. When you think of changing the world, we normally would think of we need big things, right? So we would think of a big movement 
needs to happen or a large churches or big budgets or these days we need to have a huge marketing blast, right? Got to get the word out. We got we to saturate the market and, and send a blast out so everybody's aware of what's happening on. And small group, it's just counterintuitive. Like that just doesn't seem, eh, right? Twelve guys, okay. That, how's that going to work? Uh, so it just is counterintuitive to our thinking. And to add to that, if we were to be really honest, the 12 disciples now are very famous and very heroic and were extraordinary men, but at the time Jesus picked them, they weren't. Right? They, they did not stand out. You did not walk through uh, you know, the different towns like Capernaum and go, wow, there's the future leaders of the world. Okay? They were really kind of nobodies. I mean... Uh, when you think of them, they weren't top shelf. They weren't really self-starting. They weren't the cream of the crop. You know, like we think of Delta Forces or Special Forces or Green Berets and there's a hundred guys and they all test out, right? And one guy makes the top. So you take that guy and you test out and eventually you get the 12 top of the top and that is your team, right? That's kind of how we would think of putting together the best of the best, right? That's not really how Jesus did it. Uh, if you look at uh, the people that he that he pulled, even the class that he pulled, uh, most of them were young. We would classify them as teenagers. Most of them were 15 to 18 years old. Peter was probably the oldest one, and Peter was probably somewhere around 19, 20, 21. Right? So they were very young uh, in comparison to what we normally uh, think of them. Um, they weren't educated. They went to synagogue. They were educated uh, in the Torah, in the law, but they didn't have junior high and high school and that kind of training. And so in these kind of fishing working classes, they really uh, didn't have um, an education. They weren't particularly talented. Some of them were pretty good fishermen, right? But that wasn't exactly a great skill. Some of them were zealots, which just means they were young hotheads and into political causes, but uh, they weren't particularly talented as a, a group of people. When you look at their training, theirs was really kind of a life on life. What made them different is not that they were different or special. What made them different was they hung out with who was different and special, right? And so when you look at um, what they went through, they walked with Jesus and they, they talked with Jesus, they ate with Jesus, they watched Jesus, they listened to Jesus, they practiced with Jesus, and they learned from Jesus. And this is vastly different training than we would normally think of in terms of classroom training, right? Uh, The American educational, we're kind of enamored with the classroom. Uh, The classroom has great strengths, also has some weaknesses, especially when you put boys in there and expect them to sit for four hours, right? This doesn't exactly go that well. And uh, I had some teachers going, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, the classroom, we're we're content-oriented. This was more life on life. They learned as they went. They learned as they watched. They learned as they practiced. More, much more of what we would call back in the old days an apprenticeship type uh, learning. But you'd have to admit it proved to be pretty effective. right? Uh, do you know anything that you've done that's lasted for 2,500 years? Right? Pretty effective in, in how we did it and how we went about it. And that's why this morning we're calling community groups the backbone of the church. Uh, and to illustrate that... Uh, how many have ever had a bad back, right? Okay. Now you can hurt a lot of parts of your body, right? You can ding up a bunch of stuff and you can still keep moving. But you throw your back out, you have a bad back, you're down, 
right? You're not only down, but you're groaning. You're in pain, <gasps> right? And then you try to move and you forget you're hurting and then you hurt all over again. Or then you start to heal and you say, I'm better, so you get back up and try to do what you do and then you throw it out again and you're back down worse than you were the first time. Without your back, you can't do anything. If you think about your back, it attaches to everything else. Your legs work because of your back. Your feet work because of your back. Your arms work because of your back. Your hands work because of your back. Even your head works because of your back. If you wreck your back, you're really in trouble And that's why we're calling community groups this morning the backbone of the church. And we're going to see this uh, pattern carried out over in the book of Acts. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, or open your phone or wherever you look these days, uh, there's this passage, famous passage. uh, You'll recognize it instantly. It's talking about when the church first started. It says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now some background on this. Uh, Jesus had risen from the dead. He had commissioned the disciples, told them the way they received power from the Holy Spirit. And then in that, Peter preached the first sermon in the church. And uh, there was quite a crowd. uh, And this would be the beginning of the church as we understand it. And boy, it started with a bang, right? Just boom! 3,000 people in one shot came to Christ out of one message. And we go, boy, if God would just work like that in our day. But a lot of times what we're missing in this is we miss the, the whole context of this passage. We go, yeah, well, the Lord was adding day by day to their numbers. And, uh, you know, 3,000 were saved. And I just, you know, think, boy, wouldn't that make the New York Times bestseller list? Right? I Can't you just see it, the title of the book? Uh, Peter, how I did it, 3,000 people in three easy steps. You know, it would sell, right? That's how we would do it. But if you look at the passage, it points out a couple key ideas, and we'll take it a little farther. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Number two, they shared. And number three, if you look at verse 46, it says, And day by day, uh, attending the temple again and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad, generous hearts, praising God and having favor with the people. Now, the favor with the people, the context here is important. A lot of times, like I said, we drop the context out of this passage, but they had just celebrated the Passover. Jesus was crucified during Passover weekend, and he rose again the day after Sabbath. So we have in Jerusalem all these people. Matter of fact, estimates are during that time, during a high Passover, which this one was, there would be anywhere from a million and a half to three million people who came into uh, the city of Jerusalem. That's a lot of people, right? So you can imagine the packed conditions and uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, if you're talking about going to Jerusalem from the other parts of the Middle East, uh, it's not like they jumped in their leaves and just drove there, right, Dave? Um, no, they didn't have Leafs or Priuses or all that kind of stuff. They didn't have Suburbans. What did they go in? They had camels and donkeys and mules and that kind of stuff. So we're talking pretty expensive trip. A lot of us uh, have thought of going to like Disneyland, right? And we come away going, man, that was expensive, <laughs> right? Well, same thing for them. When they had to go for Passover, it was a pretty expensive uh, endeavor. And so a lot of people had planned it just like you would plan it. If you go to Disneyland, you're going to plan for two days or four days or one day because that's all right and you plan it accordingly and if something changes the plans it really 
messes you up. And that's what happened to them because just like when we're on vacation, their time at the Ramada had run out, right? They had planned to be there for that Passover weekend. The Passover weekend was gone. They were supposed to be heading back home. This million and a half to three million people, who knows, knows exactly how many there were, but they couldn't leave. There was just too much happening, right? So they're still coming back to the temple courts and there's this problem of um, what do you do with all these people? So two things out of that passage, if you look, it says, number one, they met in the temple courts. That's a big group setting. That's like us this morning. There's huge platforms in the temple and the the apostles were teaching what they'd learned from Jesus and all kinds of people congregated. Uh, So that would be the large group meeting. But then two, then they also met in homes. Stop and think about this for a moment. You know, how many people can you fit in a home? Right? Maybe six to 12, right? Uh, 15 if you have a big home, right? You throw people on the floor. If you've got a basement, you throw them in the basement, right? Uh, in Israel, they had the kind of homes that you could throw people up on the roof because they were flat roofs and they could just throw them up there and sleep. But really, you can't fit that many, right? Let's say six to 12. So you're talking about taking how many of this million and a half, three million, you don't know, but you're taking, let's say, a million people. That's a pretty good chunk. And you're spreading them out throughout the homes of the people who are the believers in Jerusalem. You can imagine the chaos and you can imagine this is not a a strategic, tactical, this is a wing it from the hip. What do we do with all these people? Hey, I can take six, you can take four, I can take eight, okay? And they're dispersing out through the city that way. And so... Like us, they met, like I said, in large groups, temple courts, and then dispersed for the Indian home, small groups, which what we're calling community groups. And the other thing about this, when you read this passage, we have this picture that was perfect, right? Oh, yes, we're believers. Yes, come to my home. Uh-uh. No, it was messy, real messy. Messy as all get out, okay? It was crazy trying to pull this all off. And so, uh, but here's the other thing. It was also very alive and real. Right? I mean, Jesus was on their lips, was on their tongues, was on their hearts, and they were adjusting on the fly to make this thing happen. They weren't even sure what was happening. It had never happened before. But they were adjusting while they did. And so many of them who were pilgrims had no place to stay. And, and so because of the presence of Christ, they improvised. Right? What we now think is so done deal was really, uh, wow, We've never been here before. And so, uh, you know, you think about what they had to put together. They had to put meals together. They had a place to stay. Just think bathrooms, right? Simple things, bathrooms, or places in the shade from the sun, right? It's the Middle East kind of thing. Um, but also, man, they had life. They had community. It was in those small groups. It says they broke bread. They prayed together. They paid attention to what the disciples taught. So when the disciples taught in the big arena, they went back home and they went over what they shared and others shared stories and lives. And there was just a whole new devotion that had taken over the city of Jerusalem. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. And a lot was happening. Now, there was a lot more that was going on, a ton of stuff, actually. But for our purposes this morning, there's a huge momentum shift that takes place. What, what you find in church circles and leadership circles is there's a war over what's the right way to run a church. Should it be a large group setting? Should it be small groups and you have a cell group movement and that? But what you find in the very first church is you actually have both of them 
present at the same time. They met in the temple as large groups and they broke into homes for the evening into small groups. But one of the options gets taken off the table really quick. It's, it's removed and they can no longer do it anymore. We find this in Acts chapter 8. If you turn your Bibles and turn into Acts chapter 8, what happens is suddenly pressure kicks in. There is a kickback to this movement. There's opposition. And in that opposition, we find one of the leaders of the church, Stephen, being stoned. And in the midst of that, um, Saul, who later became Paul, is at the stoning of Stephen. And it says this about Paul here in Acts chapter 8. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Which I find kind of funny because the church was only in Jerusalem. Right? There wasn't any other church outside of it. So it's like, well, that's kind of interesting. But they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, all except the apostles. In other words, this wasn't, could we ask your permission? A persecution broke out and boom, right? They're scattered. They're, they're at, you know, hit the road jack as fast as you can get out of town, get out of town. Why? Because it says Paul was ravaging the church. That word ravaging is the same word we would use for rape. Okay? It's cousin kindred word. In other words, Paul was going through the church like a person would rape a woman. That's the imagery there. It's not pretty. It's not uh, kind. It's, it's very intense and very evil. Right? And Paul is ravaging the church. How is he ravaging the church? He's entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It says Saul ravaged the church. Now, how did he ravage the church? He went after the community groups. He went after the small groups. And um, two things, I think, can be taken from this. Number one, the large group meetings, like I said, are off the table. You can't even do them anymore. Number two, you can take out some of the groups, but you can't take out all of the groups. That's the beauty of small groups. You might get some of them, but it's pretty hard to get all of them. One, because they were not even all in Jerusalem anymore. When the pressure hit, when boom, they went, and they scattered all over the place. So it's pretty hard to track that all down. And they took with them, because they probably more than likely split into small groups of the areas that they came from originally, because they were going back home together and said, well, let's form a small group on the way back home. We would actually call that a church, a small group church. Now this is not only a pattern in Acts, this is a pattern throughout the history of the church. So what you find is that the church always meets in primarily two forms, one a large group meeting and then two small groups. Uh, but there are seasons in history where the large group goes off the table and then during times of pressure and persecution, resorts back to small groups because it's the only way it can survive. And I want to walk you through some of this. Uh, here, here's a picture. This is a picture of parts of the Roman catacombs that were preserved. And this is where the early church met when it came under pressure from Nero and several of the Roman emperors who tried to snuff the church out. And you can see it's, it's, that's kind of nice and cleaned up. There's some tile on the floor and there's no bodies there. But do you know what the catacombs originally were? They were the tombs, the graveyards. That's where the bodies were placed. Why did the church... And also you can see that hallway, pretty narrow. And not a lot of room for a whole lot of people there, right? Um, why would the church meet there? Well, it was the place nobody else would go. Okay? Well, 
we, we romanticize it now, but if you think about it, there's a lot of dead bodies in there. There's a certain smell and odor to that. Okay? Plus, there's no light down there. You have torches and stuff, so you come out of the meeting smelling like campfire. And uh, it was basically a place where no one goes. So the church said, let's meet in the only place no one will find us. It's so stinky, nobody will go down there so we can meet and worship the Lord. We, we romanticize that now, but it was highly practical and very immediate, and this is the only thing we can do at this instant. It's not what we would prefer, but it's the only way we can pull it off so we'll meet in the tombs. I mean, think on Sunday morning if you thought of driving to the graveyards. Right? We don't even have anything equivalent to this right now because um, we've, we've cleaned it up so much. But um, that, was, that was the catacombs uh, in Rome. Uh, second picture, this is a picture of the hiding place. We're pretty familiar with Corey Ten Boom and, and that whole story. But one of the things that most uh, people don't realize is the Christians also had to go underground during World War II um, because uh, they were also persecuted. And people say all the time, why didn't the German Christian pastors and the Christian church do more during the time to stop Hitler? They did. They spoke out against Hitler. And you know what happened? The SS came to the door, knocked on the door, and they would take the husband down for questioning at the police uh, precinct. And about two weeks later, they would come back, there would be another knock on the door, and they'd hand the wife a box. And in the box would be her husband's ashes that they cremated and his ring on top. And they let you know very clearly exactly what would happen if you opposed what was taking place. And so the church had to go underground. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably one of the more famous ones that operated in the underground church in Germany at the time. But there were many, many, many others um, uh, who were involved in that and uh, doing that. What's the takeaway in that? Because you're sitting there going, Mitch, you're creeping me out with this persecution thing, all right? Uh, what are you, just not in touch or what's the deal? No, I understand. I, I'm a dad of four. I have a very beautiful wife. I would like to stay with her for a while. Okay. And fortunately, in this country, we've never had to face persecution. But there's no guarantee in the Bible that says we wouldn't someday. And so two of the takeaways I think that are really important here is that in good times and in bad, community groups or small groups are the essential backbone of the church. They provide the structure that keeps the rest of the body functioning. You may not be known by all, but you're known by some. You may not do everything, but you do something. You may not be connected in a big way, but you're connected in a small way, right? And that's what community groups, they give you a place where you can actually get relationships going. I was just uh, talking with Nels and Nancy this morning. They're talking about a small group. They did this summer, uh, we did dinner groups, right? The barbecue things. They're talking in their dinner group. They're sitting there talking and it turns out there was this unbelievable, miraculous relational connection in their small group that goes back to world, well, back to the Korean War, right? Yeah. Or Vietnam War. Vietnam War. Okay. And they're sitting there across the table going, you're kidding. They go, you're a moose. And they're like, Wow, and they would have never known that if they'd never been in that dinner group. And that's, that's what community groups foster. They foster that kind of connectivity. Also, if persecution does break out, we may be denied our, our large group meetings place. We, there may come a time when we can't meet like this. But I want to suggest if we're in community groups 
that Northview Community Church can be alive and flourishing instead of the pressure and persecution. Because we kind of think if we have pressure and persecution, it's all going to crumble, it's all going to fall apart, it's all over, and, and the church is done, and, and it will never go anywhere. As a matter of fact, it will die. And I want to suggest to you that that is not true. And you go, Steve, what would you base that on? I want to give you a, another history lesson. This right here is also a picture of an underground church. This is actually a cavern dug in the ground uh, for a church to meet uh, in a persecuted country. This country happens to be China. This is one of the underground churches that existed during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, if you go back to 1949, I call my friend Steve Chittenden up. Many of you know him, know that name. Uh, he's a guy in the area, does all kinds of ministry, and uh, takes very consistent trips to China, bringing the Bibles into China. And Steve... Um, I asked Steve about the underground church, and he says this. In 1949, when Chairman Mao took over, in other words, the Cultural Revolution happened, there were estimated in China uh, one to two million Christians. All right? So back in 1949, there were one to two million Christians in China. In 2010, so it's 2014, so this information's four years old already, but it's still relevant, and you'll see why in a second. Operation World came out with a revised book on missions and they are saying, so this is in 2010, that there are 105 million in both the house church and the three self church. Now Steve said that's the published number. He said he's talked to others who say the number is much closer to 125 million and some experts put it as high as 160 million. So under pressure and under persecution, going underground as a church, the church went from 1 to 2 million to, let's pick the middle number, 125 million. I said to the math people, uh, figure that out, what the increase on that is. One guy came back and said, you lost me for the rest of the message because I had to calculate it in my head. He says, it's 6% increase per year. And I said, ah, yes, but it's compound, right? He goes, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Because it's a compound 6% each year because it's it's exponential growth. And so in pressure and in persecution, the church just took off. Now, would any of us ever pick that? Would we say, oh, I'll sign up for that, Lord. That sounds like fun, awesome. No. Does the church have it all together when that happens? No. Is there all kinds of chaos? Yes. It's messy as all get out. There's all kinds of messes in the Chinese church. But here's the point. It not only stayed alive, it flourished during this time. Right? And so uh, we feel that uh, community groups are something that we need to go back to and something we need to stay in because they will be very helpful for us as a church fellowship. And uh, when we're talking about I want to close with this one. This is out of Jeremiah. You know this one. It's a great verse. It says, If you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, how can you compete with horses? And if you stumble in the safe country, how will you manage in the thickets of the Jordan? And the thickets of the Jordan are nasty. They got thorns like our nails, like, you know, just cut you up worse than blackberry bushes. And, uh, and so what this is saying is, hey, if, if you're having a hard time when it's green, what are you going to do when times get difficult? And our answer to this is that while things are good, we want to break into community groups and get them rolling. If... Uh, Times get hard, we will also run with community groups. We will run in the green, we will run with men, and we will run with horses. We will run in the good country, and we will run in the thickets, how? With small groups. 
because we know that that's something that the Lord can use as the backbone of the church and keep it going no matter what the circumstances of the culture uh, start to dictate or change. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Right? You ever notice you can get more done together than by yourself? Either, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And that's why we're saying, don't do life alone. Because when you fall, there's nobody to pick you up. There'll be all kinds of people to pick up Gary and Karen. Why? Because they're in a relationship, right? Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What we're saying there is you've got to be connected. You can't sit on the fringe and float. Um, there's too much going on in our world. There's too much going on in our culture uh, to sit out on the outside and just be watching. You've got to get tied in. And so um, we're asking us to consider connecting to these community groups.